0: Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. And just a reminder Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
1: Hello, hello, hello! Welcome back to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim, and Consensus Ben Edgington.
2: Hi, everybody. Uh, Christine and I, as usual, will be going through your weekly roundup of markets, tech, and community-related news about Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0. Hey, Christine, how are you doing? I am extremely tired. <laughs>
1: we oh, are recording no. this podcast on a Monday, and oh my gosh, this Monday is killing me. But I would like to start off the show with a special thanks to all of our listeners who've stuck with us over 20 episodes of the series. I got some good news today from our podcast producer, Michelle, that we are in the top 125 podcasts on Apple. So of all the podcasts on Apple under the news commentary division, we're up there in the top. 125. We're actually number 124, to be precise. So very happy about that. It was good news.
2: That's amazing news, uh, isn't it? Here we are just uh, having fun and having a chat and people are tuning in, which is great. Hey, what do we need to do to get into the uh, top 100? We need to talk about cats more. What are what we got to do?
1: I think we need to talk about crocheting more. Ben, ah, crochet, that's a yeah. popular topic, given you know the popularity of that on other social media platforms.
2: Yeah, yeah. My daughter's crochet-related Instagram account has twice as many followers as my crypto-related Twitter account. So uh, yeah, crochet. All right, I will get practicing.
1: Crochet all the way. Well, actually, I mean, we could also get a little bit more spicy with our hot takes on this podcast. And to kind of shake things up today, I am very excited to invite Coindesk research intern, Teddy Oosterban for the market segment of today's show.
3: (laughs) Hi, Teddy. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Congrats on the success of your podcast.
1: Thank you, Teddy. Thank you. For those of you who are listening, you may not know, but Teddy has been supporting this entire podcast series for the past month or so, writing the summary articles that go out every Thursday with each new episode. And today, Teddy has prepared a pretty controversial topic for us to discuss in today's market segment. Teddy, what are we talking about? What's the hot news in Ethereum markets lately?
3: Yeah, so I think a good subject to talk about Uniswap Labs' recent decision to ban tokenized securities from being listed on their front end, which it's important to note that the protocol has not made any decisions at their level, but at least the interface that most people are using, has delisted those. But first, I should maybe talk a little bit about Uniswap and why it's so important. So it's currently the largest uh, DeFi protocol by revenue and then trading volume as well. It's a decentralized exchange that has typically let anyone list whatever asset they wanted, allowing people to create their new tokens and trade those. And I think they've done about a billion dollars in revenue over the past year, and they're on pace to do half a trillion dollars in trading volume. So they're a pretty big deal, and they're one of the, I guess, middlemen of all of DeFi.
2: What's uh, prompted this delisting then, Teddy? What, was, was there some regulatory pressure, something like that?
3: I don't know if we have anything specific, but I know the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, was like, he quoted right before, decision that any type of tokenized asset, even in DeFi, he was warning both developers and investors that they may be getting, I don't know, nabbed for trading these assets. So I think Uniswap, they have some ambitions to maybe be more aligned with current traditional financial systems. Based on another somewhat controversial topic, they gave a talk at ECC about maybe partnering up with the likes of PayPal and ETrade, trade which was taken down shortly after. But if they have ambitions to do that, maybe this is an important decision for them to make.
2: Right. So it's kind of preemptive to list only respectable tokens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, But how does this work, right? It's, it's a decentralized protocol. The whole point is that we are censorship resistant. This is why we crypto. So what's going on here? How can they actually delist this stuff?
3: So it's delisted from their front end, which is basically just the Uniswap Labs website for interacting with Uniswap. And I know that there are several other like aggregators you could trade through and still access the liquidity pools that are put onto Ethereum. They're based in code. Those can't be taken off. So those, in theory, are still decentralized. This is just one gateway that is delisting those assets. I know you can use, there's, I think, uniswap.rip provides access to these tokens that (laughs) have since been taken off of the main interface. So there's ways around it. It's not end-all be-all for these security tokens that are like synthetic stocks and whatnot, but it's a pretty big step in kind of seeing the unique relationship between Uniswap Labs and Uniswap protocol itself. Like, are they aligned or what exactly is the difference between the two?
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so kind of power users can work around this, right? They can find the alternative front ends or whatever, but the average user just going to Uniswap will see the authorized list Mm -hmm. of coins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and it's not regionalized. I've come across, I think previously, they they did some where it detected where you were, where your browser is, and and showed you different lists according to what jurisdiction. This is just a flat-out delisting, is it?
3: I believe you're right about that. I think they made it pretty clear that it was just their front end was getting rid of them completely. I know the UNI governance token, I'm not sure if that relates to the protocol level or if it would relate to Uniswap Labs as well, but I don't think there was like a governance vote in this decision. It was pretty mm-hmm. quick. I don't know what exactly conversation went into it, but there's a lot of increasing regulatory pressure, so you could understand.
1: Do you think this is going to impact other decentralized exchanges and the kind of assets that Their listing, Uniswap being the biggest decentralized exchange, how much is their decision creating ripple effects across other applications and exchanges on Ethereum?
3: That is kind of interesting to think about. I think that we might see it even go the other way and you have someone like SushiSwap step up and be like, we're one level further decentralized than Uniswap is because we're not getting rid of any, like we have a permissionless front end and a permissionless protocol. So I think it gives a unique opportunity for other people to go step in that place, which I know all the tokens that were delisted only made up a very, very small percentage of trading volume. But I think just the overall attitude of, okay, like if I'm using SushiSwap, they have the core values of DeFi where maybe now people might not believe that Uniswap does. It's not up to me to maybe make that decision. But I think it could definitely influence quite a few traders and then people who are more worried about pushing decentralization.
2: It's definitely a, a hint of corporatization about Uniswap, right? I mean, they accepted VC money a while ago, a lot of VC money, and this seems to have set a more respectable trajectory for them, whereas Sushi is perhaps a bit more the Wild West. CTO of Sushi is my former Teku teammate, Joseph DeLong. Some of the team are pseudonymous. Nobody knows who they are, but which I guess is safer, right? I don't really want to see Joe going to jail. hope he knows what he's doing
3: (laughs) yeah neither do i I, i'm hoping it works out for everyone and hopefully maybe we could exist in a world where there's both options maybe existing strictly for DeFi or integrating into the back end of some of these larger companies
1: potentially all right well thank you so much teddy for that really comprehensive breakdown on what's going on with uniswap lately thank you for being on the show We are going to take a quick break right now in our regular programming to hear a message from our podcast sponsors. And then Ben and I will be back with your regular tech and community segments for today. Stick around.
3: Thanks again.
0: There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi blockchain, DeFi enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Right,
2: we're moving on to our tech topic for today's show. And what I wanted to talk about uh, today, Christine, is that we have a new client on the Beacon chain. So the Beacon chain started running just over eight months ago. So this is the proof of stake chain that Ethereum will be moving on to in the merge soon. And since uh, it started, we've had four clients. We've had Teku, Prism, Lighthouse, and um, Nimbus are the, the four Genesis clients and have been sustaining this chain. got 200,000 validators to date, and we now have a fifth client, which is Loadstar. We've been under development for a while. It's by ChainSafe, who are based in Toronto, and they have got a couple of validators up and running on the beacon chain. Had you heard about that?
1: I had not. But what's special about the Lodestar client? Is it programmed in a different language than the other five here in 2.0 clients? Is it specialized? have like a particular advantage over other existing clients
2: that you know of? The Lodestar teams are really interesting. So they have a slightly different focus from the other teams. They're not really aiming to be a production staking client as I understand it. So this is a kind of demonstration of their capability that they're on-chain staking. What they're really aiming for is to support light client infrastructure. It's written in TypeScript, which is a, a version of JavaScript, and it will run inside web browsers. This is the, uh, the crazy thing. So one of the things we're doing with Ethereum 2, or the, the improvements that we're bringing, is making the infrastructure much more light client friendly. So let's imagine today in ETH1 world, you want to know what the balance on your your account is. There are basically two ways. You can consult a node that you don't own like Infura or something like that. You You can ask it, what's my balance? Yeah. And you can do that via a website like Etherscan or something and find out the balance of your account, but they could lie to you. It might not be about your account balance. It might be about something more important. They could give you false information and you've got really no way to know that that Information's not correct, or the only trustless way where you don't need to trust anybody else's node is to run your own node. This is why Bitcoiners are so keen on running your own node. And there's really nothing in between now either. You've got to fully trust somebody, or you've got to run your own node. And as we all know, running your own node is kind of heavy duty. So, light client infrastructure is a sort of middle way where you get fully trusted information while running only a very very minimal node on, on your own side.
1: I love the idea of building infrastructure that gives um, more accessibility to the average user to be able to verify data, verify transactions themselves. I really think that in terms of the ethos of crypto and blockchain, we can find ourselves wanting to veer off from like the course of decentralization and trustlessness for the sake of convenience. But this kind of infrastructure, light like client infrastructure, I do think is very important to maintain a sense of of ability to keep on that course of of trying to make this technology do what it's supposed to do which is cut out reliance on centralized providers and centralized businesses that often charge you know a fee for their services
2: right and, and there are all sorts of issues with centralization like you know rent seeking as you mentioned or just single points of failure right if Something goes down, you still want to be able to use the network without having to rely on, on a single party. All sorts of streams are coming together here. One of the things that the Altair upgrade brings that we're going to be doing on the Beacon chain in a few weeks' time is to enable a super fast light client sync protocol. So, this is a way, let's say I want to interact with a blockchain and I want to do it trustlessly. So, I'll open it in my browser. And my light client will be up and running. It's a JavaScript application. And it will very quickly step through the chain up to date using this light client sync protocol. So within a few seconds, I know and I have a guarantee that I know the correct block route for the current block. I want to query the network. So I want to know my account balance. I then go to the network and say, somebody tell me my account balance. And they send me that information along with a proof. That it relates to the block number that I have. So that's called a Merkle proof. And that can't be faked. So I have my account balance and I have a proof that it's correct. And I know it's correct. I mean, it's a great idea as is. I mean, it's kind of important infrastructure thing that never really took off in ETH1. The the infrastructure was never right to enable this. But this is super important for sharding. When we have 64 shards, the whole point is you cannot look at, watch the whole system. It's just not practical to run a node that watches all the shards simultaneously. This will be a huge piece of infrastructure. So the very essence of ETH2 is that we are looking at pieces of data with proofs that they are correct and not looking at the whole set of data all the time, which is what you have to do now.
1: Yeah. So I guess this is an important upgrade preparing for the main scalability upgrade coming down the line sharding, like you said. Just a question though, about the light client infrastructure that's going to be enabled in Altair. And that's also going to have very positive impacts for the scalability upgrade later. If the super fast light client infrastructure is going to allow Teku users, Prism, Prismatic Labs users, Lighthouse users, the ability to, to sync to the network through their web browser and such, Does that remove the competitive advantage of using Loadstar? It seems like Loadstar kind of jumped the gun. They already have this light client infrastructure system in place, but with the Altair upgrade, it seems like everyone's going to get it. It's just already going to be built into the main Ethereum 2.0 protocol, right?
2: Yeah, this is about accessing the chain rather than running the chain. So we have 200,000 validators, probably 20,000 nodes out there running Prism and Teku and Lighthouse and Nimbus. The point about the work that Loadstar is doing is that anybody who wants to access data on Ethereum, and in future, it won't just be beacon chain data about slots and e it will be the whole Ethereum data set that they can query. The Loadstar work will enable you to run that in a browser and very quickly access the information you need without being somebody who's participating in the chain or running the chain. So yeah, millions of users will be able to very quickly and trustlessly uh, access any data they want uh, in Ethereum through their web browsers.
1: Are light clients less financially incentivized than like full fledged validator clients that do host and maintain the full history of the blockchain? Obviously, light clients kind of get to piggyback off of the information that's already being maintained by other full nodes, let's say. What's the kind of difference in reward structure hmm. for
2: those two, yeah, that's a really interesting question, so potentially you can have some sort of micro payment for data, so you're absolutely right, Christine, that like clients are pulling data from the network, but they're not really giving back to the network' because they're not sort of sustaining it at all. They're just a way of accessing data it's there some somebody else's client somewhere has to serve that data and generate the proof and send it over. This is not free, so potentially. There could be services which provide the data and have a sort of micropayment architecture. With that, you know, you can imagine Infura, for example, making a revenue stream with that. It remains trustless because they have to prove that the data is correct. And I can check that the proof is correct. But for the guarantees that that I get by having a service which is, you know, accessible and I know it's going to be there, uh, I might be prepared to pay a very small amount. And, you know, there'll be free tiers and big data tiers and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And you said the Altair upgrade that does activate this light client infrastructure, or at least, you know, moves it along to be more production ready. That's going to happen in a couple of weeks. Altair is going to be ready in a, a couple of weeks' time.
2: Yeah. As you know, dates are a bit slippery. Um, <laughs> it won't be a couple of weeks. I guess we're looking at September currently. It slipped a bit. I think teams were focused a lot on the rayonism, proving the merge and that kind of thing. And Altair got put on the back burner. Teku's been ready for weeks and weeks now, but uh, others are catching up. So we've run some DevNets. We are looking at forking the Pyrmont testnet in, I think it'll be about two weeks after this goes out. So if you're validating on Pyrmont, then please watch your client teams and upgrade your clients in time. We will fork the much bigger Prata Prata testnet. Assuming those go well, then we'll be ready to do the beacon chain itself. So I imagine that will take us you know, four, five, six weeks to get through that lot.
1: There you have it. That's your tech update, your update on the timeline of how ETH 2.0 is developing. Developers like Ben, certainly not slacking off, they are moving along. Very looking forward to the first hard fork on Ethereum 2.0, which will be Altair. Let's talk a little bit for the last few minutes of the show. A topic I prepared for the community segment last week, which was a crowdfunding campaign that the chair of the Allcore developers meeting, Tim Baiko, started for every single person or group that contributed to making EIP-1559 possible. And as you've heard multiple times on the show, EIP-1559 is this overhaul of the Ethereum fee market to make it more efficient and improve the user experience sending transactions on Ethereum.
2: It's amazing to think that by this the time this podcast goes out, 1559 will be active on Ethereum. There's a lot of excitement about this. We've been waiting what seems like forever to see it happen and will have done so. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. This kind of came out of nowhere, this token, this NFT crowdfund, retroactive rewarding of people who had worked on the protocol. And So they minted 1,559 NFTs, of course, and sold them for 0.1559 ETH, which was, I don't know, $400-ish around now. And then there was one unique NFT that was auctioned off and went for 32 ETH, I believe, which is a nice number, uh, an ETH2 stake. And then this was portioned up between the various teams who have contributed, the client dev teams. Uh, Some teams declined. The Ethereum Foundation side um, declined to take anything, but other teams were, were involved. Yeah, it's a really nice way to reward people who have worked on this. Yeah, what was your take on it, Christine?
1: It's nice to see everybody pitching in, various stakeholders, various users who are just fans of what Ethereum is building, give back in some way to the community and give back to developers who, do spend their personal time improving this this decentralized blockchain network. I don't think that it's particularly sustainable to always rely on crowdfunding to fuel protocol development, but when you have a decentralized blockchain, it's hard to have any kind of centralized or organized way of, of creating funding. Of course, other blockchains like Zcash has definitely allocated a certain amount of block rewards to developers to always go into a a development fund, which I think is an interesting possibility, but one that would have had to be implemented at the very start of the blockchain because now implementing something like that is far too contentious. I think the last time it was brought up just created a lot of community tension and disagreement. It's interesting to see how, how things will evolve from here. I think Ethereum Foundation, since it was around... From the beginning of Ethereum's launch and managed most of the funds from the initial ICO, they are and have always been a very primary stakeholder to fuel and to fund and to organize development of of the Ethereum blockchain. So
2: it's an interesting observation that our technology has value literally because of the, the tokens that are there. It's perhaps easier to fund these open source initiatives than, than it has been historically in other areas i, I remember a few years ago there's was saying there's open SSL which practically the whole internet relies on all the banking and everything are using this technology and billions of dollars every day, if not trillions, are being secured by open SSL there was a, a bug in it which caused you know massive uh, disruption. I was working in the area of banking financial security at the time and it was a bit hairy. There was this issue in it. And when the postmortems were done, it was discovered this whole library was maintained on a volunteer basis by a couple of guys uh, who were kind of, you know, doing it in their spare time. And it was totally out of whack. The importance of this protocol to the business, the world, in a way, was totally out of whack with the resources that were given to funding it. And, you know, I, I think to be fair, the big companies have now come good and have sort of you know, given the donations and are supporting the, these guys properly. But um, in blockchain world, we sort of have a way around that. This whole tokenization and NFTs and the value that's transacted can actually be diverted uh, to some extent, as we've seen with this 1559 uh, thing. It's a lovely exercise to show that you don't have to just do it on a voluntary basis. You, you can actually be rewarded.
1: And people are feeling particularly generous in the Ethereum community because that wasn't the only crowdfunding project that caught my eye in the last couple of weeks. Another crowdfunding campaign that also raised million seven hundred and fifty ETH was a documentary film about Ethereum involving founder of Ethereum Vitalik Buterin. This was another crowd funded initiative that. Clearly, you know, isn't like really a public good. Maybe it is. It's basically an educational, informational product that started up by this film production company, Optimist. They did not involve NFTs for the fundraising of this project, but they did use crypto fundraising platforms like Gitcoin to raise ETH for the project. And they have successfully raised all the money that they needed, over $2 million. It really shows that Ethereum is in a time of plenty.
2: Yeah, I didn't look into this much. I mean, that's brilliant that they, they raised everything they needed and more, if I understand. Is this purely done on a donation basis by people or, or do donors get a kind of stake in, in the proceeds of the film? Do you know how it's kind of constructed?
1: Oh, you know what? People get an NFT. I'm sorry, but yes, an NFT is involved in this. Non-fungible tokens designed by the crypto artist People Pleaser were available for purchase on the crypto crowdfunding platform Mirror. And these NFTs are the artwork, the posters for the documentary film that has yet to be created. So it looks like people receive kind of like an early piece of design marketing uh, for the movie, for the film. Kind of like getting Mm. your first like poster for a movie that you're really excited to see. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's really cool. So they don't get a stake in the uh, proceeds of the, the film, but they get some other kind of memorabilia or or whatever. This is nice. Yeah, there's something similar is going on with this uh, thing, the Beacon Book, which I don't know if you come across that. Oh,
1: the Beacon Book. It yeah. rings a bell.
2: Here's mine. <laughs> it uh, doesn't appear on the audio. but So this was put together by... Trent Van Epps uh, from the Ethereum Foundation is leading it, and got essays, little very short essays written by contributors to the Eth2 Beacon Chain thing, and produced physical books. The contributors got one each, and there are a hundred being auctioned off. Currently, though, it will be closed. Unfortunately, by the time this goes out, people can bid for physical copies and an NFT, but also the artwork in it, which is amazing. I mean, incredible artwork has also been. Create, uh, made into NFTs and people have been uh, purchasing those that they've been very popular. And the idea is that the funds go back to the contributors like the 1559 uh, things so the people who wrote for the book. I have donated mine back to Stateful Works which is the organization Trent set up to, to do this for future projects. It just makes the taxes too complicated.
1: <laughs> oh, I thought this was altruism, you know, like trying no, to... Good no, piece.
2: I don't want to spend hours sorting out the tax, that's all. <laughs> so uh, that's all going back to them. Yeah, it's another example of a, of a great project. I expect we'll see uh, a lot more of this.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's exciting to see all these crowdfunding uh, projects really take off and get the funding that they need through these kinds of mediums, NFTs, and immobilia... Turns out you can actually get your name in the credit of the film as well
3: uh, when you fundraise,
1: or when you you contribute to the documentary. Exciting things happening. I think we are going to wrap up the show here, and we are going to remind everyone that we're going to be back again next Thursday for another weekly roundup of your markets, tech, and community news. And by that time, Ethereum will have completed its 11th backwards incompatible hard fork, the London upgrade so i'm sure we'll we'll have some exciting news about that coming up next week if you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast about ethereum ethereum 2.0 you can connect with ben and i on twitter our handles are in today's show notes
2: and we both write newsletters i write every other week on what's new in eth2 which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on twitter i'll let you know when the next one is out And Christine's newsletter called Valid Points comes out every Wednesday, and you can find that at Coindesk.com. See you all next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Bye, everybody.
0: You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington, with guest Teddy Osterban. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.